Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the fourth international workshop on acute leukemias, which was held in Nice, France. The first session at this year's meeting focused on the standard of care in acute myeloid leukemia in 2022, where you will hear from experts Mark Levis, Eunice Wang, Jessica Altman and Charles Craddock. Uh, hi, this is Mark Levis. I'm here in Nice, France at iWall 2022. I'm, I'm here with my colleagues Eunice Wang, Jessica Altman and Charlie Craddock and we've just finished a lively session uh, apparently trying to define standard of care in AML. And I don't think we quite did, uh, but we had a good uh, lively discussion trying to. Uh, and so I'll throw out a question to the group here and maybe we'll pick on Eunice first. Um, did we conclude anything uh, this morning about what the current standard of care is? It seems to be moving uh, in all sorts of directions. Well, I think we had some general conclusions, which I hope my colleagues will concur with. Um, I think we all agree that potentially the first-line therapy should be our best approach to get the person into a complete remission, and whether that's adding targeted therapies or adding different modalities, or potentially even on some of our ML patients now offering them non-intensive backbones like Venasa, whatever needs to be done um, to be getting that patient into a CR is preferable. Uh, we talked a little bit about triplet therapies now with like a Venasa backbone and a targeted therapy, whether that be IDH or FLT3. We talked about seven plus three plus targeted approaches. Um, and then we then learned from Dr. Craddock that once we get some of our high-risk patients into uh, complete remission, that potentially the best therapy for those individuals, even in the presence of a TP53 mutation, is going to potentially be allogeneic stem cell transplantation. And there was discussion about how to get those people there, different conditioning regions, et cetera. Um, and then there was some talk from Andre Way uh, talking about maintenance and the importance of post-transplant modifications and whether that arena could be a way to further improve outcomes. So I think it was a pretty um, detailed approach at every step in the process of treating AML now is subject to new innovations and new additions to try to improve that outcomes for our patients. I guess we'd call it tailoring. Tailoring, uh, personalized tailoring. therapy. Now, I wonder, uh, Charlie has got us, uh, I think all of us are transplant enthusiasts. Anybody who treats the disease is and, and um, uh, Charlie and uh, the transplant talks we heard really were focusing on tailoring uh, as much as we've been doing in AML. So Charlie, uh, where is transplant going with that regards? Focusing on AML, not all the diseases you transplant. Yes, I, I think there are two fundamental questions, aren't there, um, Mark, in a newly diagnosed patient um, or a patient who you've just got into CR. The first is, what, what is their likely outcome if you just give them chemotherapy using whatever combination we have available? Um, and what's their predicted relapse risk? Uh, the second is, uh, if we did a transplant, what would be the predicted risk to the patient? The uh, evidence really, I think, is compelling that there is a powerful graft versus leukemia effect that 
results in a substantial reduction in risk of relapse compared with uh, in application of intensive chemotherapy, but one of course has to be sure that that's not offset by transplant toxicity. So I think there is a, 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 a movement really now towards recognizing that in patients who are fit with a good donor, who have a predicted risk of relapse much north of 45%, then they're likely to benefit from uh, a consideration of a transplant, although obviously that's quite a nuanced decision. So I was particularly interested in presentations from Eunice and colleagues where we were talking about actually how we move patients into a morphological remission so they can be considered for transplant, but also with minimal toxicity. And I think the advent of drugs such as CPX351 is very interesting. And one of the areas of discussion was whether Venasa or even a triplet based on a Ven regimen might be an effective way of people getting into a CR with an allograft as your curative strategy. And it's interesting you bring up this uh, getting into a deeper remission and the, the fact that you pointed out we've long seen a primary refractory patient you give them seven and three or something, their leukemia is staring back up at you. You can take that patient to, directly to an aloe and see some of those long-term survivors. And you don't do that in the relapsed setting unless you fold in something targeted. We do see relapsed refractory, chemo relapsed refractory patients, uh, Dr. Altman, surviving when we introduce a targeted therapy. So there's uh, clearly, you and I don't like treating relapsed refractory patients, but uh, we're making some progress with that. Um, and so that the session uh, was got into the end with the, 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 the dreaded triplets that are coming. So uh, again, rehash for us what your favorite triplet is. Uh, and are we, is that only going to be the relapse refractory setting or are we going to actually um, work up the nerve to pull that up front? Sure, thanks. So I think we're waiting, eagerly awaiting additional data. We have some preliminary data uh, regarding HMA-VAN FLT3 inhibitors, really from the MD Anderson group, um, in newly diagnosed and relapsed patients. And in newly diagnosed patients, um, and in relapsed patients, the response rate is, is quite high. Um, and I think that what we need to get at is exactly what you alluded to, is how to adjust the treatment so, it is e so it's tolerable long-term. Um, so I think that that's one aspect that will be studied, and studied ideally in a randomized setting, whether we, p we do triplet-based therapy or doublets um, and then use the third agent at the time of relapse, what ends up being a better both response rate, durability of response, quality of life, and those questions and the value, relative value of those questions and the answers to those questions change based on the goals of the patient. And then you, we also have data um, in the IDH-mutated patients, um, really um, some nice randomized data in, um, with doublets, so AZA and an IDH inhibitor versus AZA alone. So in the, it's interesting, in the, uh, on the one hand, you know, we had this debate over RIC versus MAC and, and well, is there really a difference? And then we were talking about MRD. 
Now, we didn't talk about this today, but Chris Horrigan did do that analysis of the um, BMT-CTN trial, the randomized trial of MAC versus RIC, suggesting that patients with detectable MRD were the ones that could benefit from myeloablation. We're not sure that myeloablation is truly better, but it does speak to this. So, so Charlie, somebody, first of all, I tried to hold your feet to the fire and say, what do you prefer, Rick or Mac, or is there a difference? How about a relapsed refractory patient that Jessica has managed to get into re remission uh, with uh, our whatever targeted agents we've used, and they're MRD positive, are you going to use a myeloblator or a non-myeloblator? Yeah, I think we actually make this dis discussion a little bit more complex than it has to be. So well, one of the things that Alessandro Rimbaldi talked about was advances in myeloablative conditioning regimen. So the FLUBU4 regimen is now really quite well tolerated, and it has a day 100 treatment-related mortality of about 7%. So if you are, have a fit patient and you've got a good donor and they're maybe under the age of 50 or 55, why would you not choose to prefer a myeloablative regimen, whether they're MRD positive or negative? Because if, I'll interrupt them because I want to introduce a targeted agent as soon as I can. Yes, and I think that's where the point comes in, Mark. I think with the use of... Uh, say regimens such as flu before or ATG, the, the, the risk of GVHD is not that high and the toxicity isn't that severe. So I think it's your age and your fitness that determines that. But if you are young, I mean under 50, I think those patients should go to myeloablative regimen, certainly if they're MRD positive. And if they're MRD negative, why not until there's randomized data that a RIC is better? Because this, this debate came up with us where we were trying to introduce our FLIT3 inhibitor. We had a toxic one, serafinib. Wasn't that well tolerated, and the myeloablative patients were still recovering from myeloablation, and we had trouble getting our drugs started in time. I don't know if you've had that experience, Jessica. So, uh, so, so just to, let me just finish that point, and then um, Jessica will uh, 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 amplify on it. So, so that means the majority of patients actually can't have a myeloablative regimen because they're too old, all right? The majority of patients just have to have a RIC. So again, we, we shouldn't agonize too much about that. And I think what you're suggesting is there are certain settings where you may wish to intervene very early with an agent and in, in which younger patients may benefit from a RIC. But I think on the whole, my view is if you're young and fit, you should go for a myeloablative. But most of our patients have a RIC and we need to think about how to make RICs work better. I've seen that in my practice as well. Right? I'm no longer a stem cell transplant doctor. I work only really, I, I know, it's okay. Um, so, but we see that in our patient population as well, that our younger patients um, or are going for myeloablative regimen, and then we try really hard to figure out when we can start a targeted therapy post-transplant. Um, I think it's, hopefully, we'll learn from your, your data, Mark, that it's going to be easier to institute the use of guilt or inib post-transplant, and hopefully there will be a survival advantage um, compared to placebo. Well, so that, I mean, giltaritinib is more tolerated, so now I don't have this problem of starting my drug quickly. So, in fact, yes, I, I'm now shifting back to saying I want to do more myeloblation uh, because I can start guilt no problem on day 30. I couldn't do that with serafinib. But I, that, 
I think I'll kind of uh, finish up our session here with a broader question. And I had a discussion with one of our colleagues at this meeting last night about this. Why are we transplanters or leukemia doctors only? It seems to me that you know we have the best approach is to do both because uh, the, the transplanters are paying attention to the molecular data now very closely. The, we're focusing on getting our patients to transplant and we're trying to, do I need to give them another regimen to get them MRD negative or is that gonna you know, just take them to transplant? What's the data? Why are we not integrating more? I don't think I meant to imply that I am not a transplant physician I and that I'm only a leukemia doctor and that my patients don't go to transplant. Like, I know you were not implying well, no, that. No, I wasn't. But, but yeah. I, right, I think it's, I think it is, as you said, an integrative collaborative approach. I have um, one of our transplant physicians meet with the patient as soon as possible. I discuss with the transplant physician what injection and then consolidative approach and post-remission therapy, because right, post-remission therapy spans transplant and non-transplant um, regimens. And then um, we talk about how quickly I can see the patient back post-transplant to start talking about some post-transplant maintenance. So um, I, I feel I agree with you completely. For me, it's a question of time, right? So, I, I can't do that. So, so, yeah. so I do think it's a continuum. I think it's not a, a it's a, a, you see a patient, you have to design their entire care plan from diagnosis to ideally cure. So I think it's very important to personalize, as we talked about, and tailor that treatment. So obviously for patients with favorable cytogenetics, they're not gonna need potentially a transplant. So you wanna add your gemtuzumab or your CKID inhibitor to potentially intensive therapy and you wanna cure those individuals. Cure rates are still 40, 60, 80% in those patients. And patients with intermediate and adverse risk, then we start talking about um, adverse risk patients probably shouldn't get intensive therapy, we think, in these days. They've should probably get um, maybe a then HMA-based therapy, less toxicity, getting them to that transplant, and then having the discussion what type of transplant. Intermediate risk we're struggling with. A lot of those patients are FLT3 mutant, IDH mutant. We didn't talk about menin inhibitors. Um, those patients, are there things that we can do? We can add VEN, we can add a FLT3 inhibitor, we can add an IDH inhibitor to either an intensive or non-intensive backbone. And then we need to use our MRD to help us determine, again, whether transplant is going to be warranted. We are now getting with our combination targeted cytotoxic HMA-based therapies overall response rates in the 90 to 100 percent range. When we get into that range, our therapy really is going to be dependent on MRD um, because we're not going to be able to distinguish which one of those patients getting 100 percent morphologic leukemic-free state are going to need to go to transplant or not. So it's a continuum and continuing working. You don't want to get to transplant and have somebody not get the ideal regimen up front. You don't want to get the ideal regimen up front and forget that some of those patients that have morphologic leukemia-free state are going to relapse. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. And finally, Mark, we were talking broadly here about which patients in CR1 to take to transplant. And you brought out the point that there are selected patients with primary refractory AML and selected patients with very high risk AML characterized perhaps by a MECOM abnormality or, or P TP53. But I think it's key that the leukemia and the transplant physicians work closely to identify which populations in those groups are likely to benefit from 
transplant because clearly many won't. And then post-transplant coordination again. You're managing the transplant complications, bringing them back into the leukemia fold to manage how to optimize the anti-leukemic activity. And you're going to have to learn to be a leukemia doctor, which I know you already are a pretty good one. We'd hire you any day, Charlie, but um, you're going to have to be using these agents that we're using pre-transplant, post-transplant, uh, more and more, I suspect. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, th I think the other bit is transplanters, I hope, are getting a bit more sophisticated. So many people who have a transplant do fine, and they have good long-term survival. I think we're going to be using diagnostic and possibly pre-transplant genomics, and also pre- and post-transplant MRD to identify a population of patients whose outcome is poor in whom we need to take into randomized studies of novel interventions. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.